episode nine. Fall is over, but we're just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now here are America's next top mall walkers. I am Rob Sestrino. Here is Antonio Mazzara. Antonio, how are you? Next top. What are you challenging my current ranking? Yes. Sorry about that. Sorry <laughs> yeah, about don't that. come at me, man. Yes. Don't come at me. I know what I'm doing when it comes to mall walking. I'm out there. Are you all laced up, Antonio? I'm all laced up. I got my sweatsuit on. Yeah, this is a typical routine for me, Rob. This is what I do. You get out there and commune with the elderly. It's fun. Yeah, I really wish that uh, Jimmy could have stopped for a Cinnabon on the way to the mall. Wouldn't have been a little on the nose for Jimmy to show up at Cinnabon. Like, oh, I love these. Like, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see how you feel about this later, Gene. Right, right. Okay. (laughs) So uh, here we are, and uh, only one week away from the Better Call Saul season three finale. A lot of pieces uh, moving into place. Uh, Rough night for Kim. Rough night for Kim. Yeah, let's not bury the headline beginning at the end. Uh, terrible. Uh, things came crashing down around Kim. And uh, can't say we didn't see it coming, Rob. We saw a near accident in this episode. We saw her falling asleep in her car on a previous episode. The no-dos are featured prominently in her car in this episode. This has been a long time coming, but it was still pretty jarring. Were you were you surprised by this accident? Or did you feel like we were going to see this happen? I mean, it really did feel like a storyline they were setting up from the the beginning of the season where Kim is spread too thin. I mean, she did have the, you know, giant, uh, hard to miss bottle of no dose in her car. Everything right. was about that. Kim is just, uh, like an accident waiting to happen. Uh, I thought like, Oh, are we going to lose Kim? Is Kim going to die? I mean, uh, they really did give us the Kim POV on that scene, but ultimately She does crash. She walks away from the crash. And I'm not really sure where we're going with this. It's hard to say where she's at with Jimmy. I think that's the the thing where the chickens come back to roost on this one. And we have seen people in Jimmy's life have these penultimate episodes, and I'm thinking mostly of Chuck, or the uh, the end-of-season episodes where they have a big breakdown or something horrible happens to them, and then Jimmy is forced to reckon with what has happened. And it's in sometimes in part because of what he has done. He lost Marco at the end of season one. The stuff with Chuck happens at the end of season two. It feels like we're leading to something happening between Jimmy and, Chuck, or Jimmy and Kim here at the end of season three. And it feels like all of that is part and parcel to the making of Saul Goodman. And I think that taking Kim out of the equation and this really finding a way to roost most directly with her and Jimmy is where we're headed with this. Yeah, but what is she going to blame on Jimmy that she had to take on more work because of Jimmy isn't pulling his weight or she felt guilty or, I mean, because of the Chuck case? I'm not sure. I don't see the through line necessarily. I, I see how, like, okay, she crashed the car. Her papers are everywhere. She could potentially potentially lose Mesa Verde over this, but how does that tie back to Jimmy? Well, that's the interesting question is how would Kim tie it back to Jimmy? What would Kim say about why she was doing all this? And keep in mind, it was Jimmy who stuck the uh, who dangled this proposition out and said, basically, let's go out on our own. And that was under the auspices or the belief that they weren't going to be law partners, but they were going to share resources and share paralegals and things that they don't even have. I mean, they don't have the things that they were going to share and that they would need because they were a two lawyer practice. What they have is a receptionist, essentially a legal assistant, maybe, but they don't have people that they would have and they don't 
don't have the support they would have of a larger firm. That's on the the larger picture. On the smaller picture, she doesn't have Jimmy at all. He isn't a lawyer. He can't help her in any way, and he can't take any burdens off of her. He can't even really talk shop with her. He's not allowed to provide legal advice. And the other thing is, I do think that what happened with Chuck pushed the two of them apart. She doesn't want to confront it. He won't let her talk about it. And they're not even really seeing each other that much anymore. It doesn't seem like he didn't even know about Gatwood Oil. This is on the heels of last episode where they hadn't seen each other in a couple of days and she didn't know that he hurt his back. So they are already drifting apart. And I just think this is going to be one of those incidents or uh, summations, if you will, if you want to take the legal argument perspective, that is going to be representative of the falling apart of their entire relationship that in some ways started when he asked her to come out and join a firm with him and then wasn't there to provide any support. And then how does that tie back into this transition from Jimmy McGill into Saul Goodman? I mean, it just seems like to me like there's a lot of stuff happening, but and I guess that's why it's a great show. I I don't really, uh, you know, I can't see that that one line of how A to B to C because of this event. Yeah, and I'm not sure that it is. I think that with Saul Goodman, I think what we're seeing I think we're seeing it this season is it's not just one uh, attendant cause that having Chuck as his idol and his brother was something we saw in season one that kept Jimmy at least a little bit honest. He was slipping a little bit, but he was trying to hide it from Chuck and he was playing it above board. But one of the other things that kept him honest was Kim. If you'll recall, he got the money from the Kettleman's. He took a large bribe. He could have had a significant amount of money with regard to that. He didn't take it, and he didn't take it in part because he really wanted Kim to get out of Doc Review and get out of the trouble that she was in because the Kettleman's had run away in part because of what Jimmy had done. So Jimmy and Kim, Kim has always brought him back to the light side. She was the one who recommended him for Davis and Maine. She was the one who he was trying to fit into that position as a result of. And I think if you pull the two of them apart after already having taken Chuck out of the mix, I think you're taking rudders. I think you're taking away things that kept Jimmy a little more straight. And I think we're seeing this now ultimately, which is that if you look at, I mean, this week's episode was called Fall, right? Last week's episode was called Slip. So despite, you know, outside of the fact that they're one right after the other in the, in the just nomenclature connection of the show, the titles are very connected. And I think that you're seeing Jimmy he slips last episode. He goes and runs the con on the brothers after trying to play it straight with them. Maybe a little crooked, but certainly not underhanded. And then it didn't work, so he ran a con. Then he ran another con uh, with the community service guy. Now he's really tasting what he likes, and the, the next step, I think, is, is much more brutal what he does in this episode. And I think all of this is because Chuck is gone, and Chuck has pushed him away, and Kim is not there in his life to pull him back and to speak to his better angels. So I don't think it's like a directly linked thing because of A, B happens. It's not a p- after it, therefore, because of it. But I do think that the loss of these things in Jimmy's life are are directly linked to his slipping away. And then it becomes a vicious cycle because him slipping pushes them even further away and then he gets into a greater problem. The thing that really muddies all of this for me is that we saw in this hour that Jimmy went to great lengths to get that Sandpiper settlement uh, coming right. his way. And now that he has this money coming to him seemingly sooner than later, if there is some pressure on Kim of, I'm going to lose Mesa Verde, I'm going to lose this other oil job that I have, and then I am also not 
not going to be able to pay my own way. I'm going to be hurt financially unless it's just like a ego thing for Kim of that. My only client, Mesa Verde, I had them and now I have no self-worth and now I will blame Jimmy for the loss of this somehow when I don't think he was really directly you know, involved with this. I mean, it had nothing to do with him that she took on this second client that she spent so much time doing work for. It was one thing during the Chuck case certainly. But I just don't know necessarily, you know, how this becomes uh, such a wedge between them, especially if Jimmy has this settlement coming, which could potentially be the answer to whatever problems are going to come up. Yeah, that is an interesting thing. The why. We talked about it last week. Why did Kim take this oil client on and why did she have a change of heart? She originally told them that she was only going to be able to give them a little bit of advice and steer them to another firm. Then actually she saw that Jimmy was able to take care of his end of the money. And she heard from him like, we're good. Like, I'm taking care of this. He handed her an envelope full of money. He sold all his commercials. He was lying on the floor of his office. And and he seemed to be like, okay, we're going to deal with this. Like, you don't have to worry about me. We can stop talking about it. And then she pivoted from there and went back and told the client, you know, actually, I can handle this. And that was always something that didn't make the most sense to me. I don't know if you have a different read on that in light of what happened this week. And now we know what her offer was for these clients. But I thought we had a uh, I laughed a little bit at your uh, at your example that you gave last week. Oh, wait a minute. So you're telling me there are people out there in the world who when they don't want to be around another person, they throw themselves into work. And so that was kind of uh, one of our (laughs) takeaways from this is that it might have been Kim not wanting to be around Jimmy that pushed her into this job to begin with. So now if she loses the client or if that is not part of it, she will have to face up to that part of it that didn't want to be around Jimmy and she'll have to earn that or own that. And honestly, that's when the stuff that happened with Chuck might come bubbling back to the surface. And then ultimately that is the greater sin. And that is the thing that she still can't get past clearly. And the thing that has caused her to blow up at page and Jimmy won't even talk about it. So I think that that could be the, the wedge that's ultimately driven between them. And it's only for lack of work to do that that will get exposed. I do think that all roads lead back to Howard though, because you now have Kim who had like a, a direct confrontation with Howard at that lunch meeting. And I felt like it was kind of like uh, an FU to HHM that she ends up taking that on where, you know, HHM has so many different, uh, you know, branches and resources that they can take on multiple things. She's trying to compete with them and she's really a one person shop. But, you know, after having a run in with Howard, she feels like, oh, oh, if they can do it, I can do anything that they can do. Sure. Give it to me. She doesn't want them to necessarily feel like, oh, maybe we should have gone with these other guys because they can take on these other Uh, assignments and it's really like they're not going to be spread too thin. You have Kim at odds with Howard. You have Jimmy at odds with Howard uh, in this episode and you have Chuck at odds with Howard. And I do wonder, I mean, could, is it possible that instead of Jimmy Chuck, could we see the three of them on the same page back again against Howard going into the final episode? 
Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about the three of them being on the same page against Howard. That is, uh, that's interesting. Howard will probably have known, of course, that Jimmy ultimately did what Jimmy did to goose the uh, the settlement into happening. Uh, and that's something that Howard suggested that Jimmy would do. And Jimmy went through and did it. He didn't do it in the way that Howard suggested, but he found his own way to do it. And it was a really unseemly and dirty way to do it. But he did ultimately, Howard knew that Jimmy was asking for this money now. How the settlement gets forced out of nowhere, it really does feel like this could boomerang back on Jimmy, and that would cause him to have major issues with Howard. The Kim stuff with Howard is fascinating to me because I look at Howard as Kim's mentor, of course, that that Howard was the one grooming her, that he brought her up. She didn't she seemed to have a more direct relationship with Howard than she ever did with Chuck. And yet here we see Howard with Chuck as his mentor. Chuck saying, I uh, helped you study for the bar exam. I did all these things and uh, you never did all these things. And I'm the guy. And, th- and so there was this interesting the relationship with Chuck and Howard to me is very similar to the relationship between. Howard and Kim. And I do wonder if at the end of the day, it's easier for Howard and Kim to bury the hatchet than it is for Howard and Chuck or for Howard and Jimmy. I just think that Kim and Howard are very similar. I think that's a really good observation by you that when they had that meeting, uh, the chance meeting in the restaurant, and she's like not really even interested in the Gatwood oil and saying, I only want to focus on Mesa Verde. Howard comes over to their table. Kim, please sit down. You know, I, you know, I, I, I insist. And then she goes to his table saying, says the exact same thing, gives the check for the student loans. When she comes back, she says, yeah, put me in touch with your friend. So there is something to that. They're very similar. So I think it would be easy for them to bury the hatchet, especially when it comes to uh, when it comes to Chuck. But Kim also is a little bit sympathetic to Chuck, I think, right now. So it could go in either direction. Could we potentially have the Sandpiper settlement as the thing that, okay, Kim, she loses Mesa Verde and she loses this other client work that she had. That's her only client, you know, uh, if they feel like, okay, you you know, you were taking on too much. I, I mean, I do feel like based on the relationship between Paige, certainly, and Kim, you would think that they'd be sympathetic to her, that she, like, they're not going to necessarily, like, it wasn't like she was drunk. I don't think they're going to look at her as a potential, like, oh, this was so irresponsible that you were you know so tired driving around doing all this work for us but hypothetically if she did lose that piece of business you could see kim where she now has to you know is counting on that sandpiper settlement coming through jimmy without a law degree is uh or without an active law license isn't able to be practicing and then i mean is it possible that at the same time that chuck gets somehow involved uh with this as a way to hurt Hamlin, I, I don't know. I think that's the the trickier part, but at least everybody uh, you know outside of Hamlin is on the same side. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it, but it certainly could it certainly could play in here. I don't know to what extent Kim stands to benefit directly from Sandpiper. Well, I know if Jimmy Jimmy gets a million dollars. I think that's definitely going to benefit her. No. Well, and that's the part that's that's interesting because you you mentioned earlier that it's possible that she would resent or that there would be this element of uh, that there. I don't know if you use the word resent, but that's the way I heard it. That ultimately the concern would be Jimmy might resent her if she's taking care of him. She's paying all the expenses. That's going to create a barrier between the two of them. And that's something that Jimmy wants to avoid. It's very important for Jimmy to be upholding his end of the bargain. And then if you flip the switch, I don't know why Jim, why Kim wouldn't feel the exact same way. She didn't even want to really talk to Jimmy 
about the settlement, even though it was clear and she would have known that Jimmy was going to get all this money. It was very important to her to take care of her client in that place and time. And I do think what's happened with Mesa Verde has always been a little tricky for Kim because while she very much truly and correctly earned the business herself, she brought them in to HHM to begin with. Her relationship with Paige and her her ability to sell with Kevin, the CEO, and the connections that she's made there have proven that she is the right attorney for that client on that level. And yet she really only has the business because of what Jimmy did with the numbers. And the Gatwood thing flows from that. So she earns that client because of how good she is with Kevin. But if the whole relationship with Mesa Verde is tainted because Jimmy brought him in to begin with or because Jimmy had a role in them ultimately coming to her side, I don't know if she's really processed all of that yet. We saw her being very Lady Macbeth last season by saying, well, your brother's the last person I would want as an enemy. If he was coming after me, I'd make sure I really covered my tracks. And it was that comment that got Jimmy up out of bed and sent Jimmy to the coffee shop and doing, uh, or not the coffee shop, the copy shop and doing everything he did there. But we haven't really seen that come home to roost on Kim overtly yet. We haven't heard her talk about how, did I even earn this client? Are you, the, I, they're only my client because of you. They're only my client because of the lie that you told. And we ultimately had to burn an old, sad, confused man <laughs> as a result of what happened. So I, we haven't really seen seen that come to bear with Kim. It seems like her response to all of that negative energy has just been to throw herself into her work. And the way I feel is if you remove all that work from the equation, you can put uh, $1.1 million into the equation. You can put not having to worry about paying bills into the equation, but I still don't think that cures up the resentment or the, the poison and the toxicity from how this was set up. So that's the interesting thing to me. All right, well, let's talk through what Jimmy was up to in this episode, and then maybe uh, we get some more clues on all the different things that we're speculating about. Uh, we see Jimmy at the start of the episode that he's going to be visiting Irene, and uh, Irene, where did we see her earlier in the series? Is she uh, the uh, Alpine Shepherd boy? Not quite the same lady. Just uh, they all look alike to me, Rob, all these older white women. Uh, he, he, this is the woman who ultimately gave birth to the Sandpiper claim uh, in a manner of speaking, metaphorically, of course. We didn't see a, like a shadow baby being born. Yikes. Uh, she, yeah, she is the woman who in season one, Jimmy is going around doing wills and she doesn't have the money to pay for her will. And it's really sad and depressing. And she's like, when I get my money from Mesa Verde, I will pay you the rest. And he says, wait a minute, money from Mesa Verde? What's going on there? And that's when he starts looking into the way Mesa Verde, not Mesa Verde. You're doing the opposite. I, I did the same thing last week. <laughs> Yes, Sandpiper, 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 not Green Hills, uh, some bird that lives in the desert. Uh, but when she's ultimately, when she, when Jimmy starts asking about what, what do you mean your money from Sandpiper? And he starts looking into the statements that Sandpiper is providing her and he realizes there's this pattern of, of behavior. And that's in part why she's the class representative. They identified her as someone who was directly impacted. It was an easy case to make. She was the one who started this whole thing rolling but that that's where we saw her first in season one jimmy was doing her will 
and she ultimately didn't have the money to pay for it. And when he was feeling bad about that, he realized that the reason she didn't have the money is Sandpiper was screwing him all over. Okay, well, Jimmy, we know he's turning over every stone right now. And so uh, he goes over to Irene. And really, we had talked about this with Jimmy McGill, where you know he is willing to hurt somebody who once he sort of identifies them as a bad person, then he doesn't mind pulling a con on them. To me, this feels like the first time that he says, hey, this person didn't do anything to me. This person didn't screw me over, but I'm going to go out there and really work them over. Yeah, and that's when it becomes a lot more difficult, right? That's when Jimmy is a lot more icky, and that's when Jimmy can be a lot more problematic. And that this is just, yeah, this, I, what you're saying is, it's triggering me, Rob. There's no like, Robin Hood tough- factor here. No, no, this was a tough episode to watch for exactly what you're saying, which is just that this was Jimmy being self-centered and being scummy and doing so at the at the expense of an old woman who truly trusted him and cared about him and liked him. And he knows that. And he's using that against her throughout the episode. We can get into, especially if we talk about that great scene between Howard and Jimmy in the parking garage, we can get into whether Jimmy has a kind of valid point here, which he kind of does, but there is still nothing to be determined or gleaned other than the fact that his motivation for doing this is purely self-centered. This isn't one of his scams that is is engineered to inure to the benefit of others that also benefits him, like we saw last week where he got the drug dealer out of the community service and he got $700 and also got credit for his hours. This is something where pretty much directly he's he's going to benefit through the result of all this behavior and it's going to put someone else in extreme emotional distress and that's the whole point of the con and it really it's it's to what to engineer a conclusion that was already on the table that they already could have taken like that's the part where it's like you're not doing anything new for these people all you're trying to do is force a situation that you want so taking the robin hood factor out of it entirely and really turning it into a skeezy thing poor irene i mean you feel so bad for Irene uh, all through the night. Uh, not since uh, Polly Walnut's mom was bullied at uh, the nursing home have you felt uh, this bad for an older woman on prestige drama. That's a, that's a great, she kind of looks like, is that, was it Nucci or whatever his mom was? She kind of looks like her. Yeah. yeah. Like this is a, there's a there there. I feel like that's a good comparison. I mean, just to have like the sort of mean girls among the uh, senior citizen yes. ladies, uh, that was very reminiscent of that for me. Yeah, and in the in the the meanness around the walking also reminded me of an early orange is the new black plot with red. Uh, when we saw that off of outside the prison, uh, there was a a snottiness about the walking group that caused a great consternation for red, and we see that happening with Irene as well. Okay, so Jimmy realizes that he is in for a big payday potentially over a million dollars uh, could be coming to uh, Jimmy McGill. So you know, I thought that this was sort of a curious move that. He waits out at the HHM parking garage for Howard to come in and then basically tells him to take the settlement. They tell you to really negotiate from a point of strength. I don't know what leverage uh, Jimmy had here. I agree. I don't think he had any leverage. However, you could read this as Jimmy's last ditch effort to engender or uh, create a solution, I should say, 
that was that did not ultimately involve what his full court press against Irene, which is what happens after that scene. Uh, he goes into the mall walking only after that. It is at least an attempt, I feel, to say, I know the offer on the table. You know that by waiting, you're really not benefiting your actual clients more. You're only benefiting yourself. So take the settlement. Like he's really hoping that I don't I don't have to go to these links. And he's willing to do that from a position where he has no real strength. But it's the alternative is to go and do exactly what he does. And that's ultimately what happens. Yeah. And Chuck is like, uh, is this what you want? You want a handout, Jimmy? And I, I thought Jimmy was going to take that cash that he was putting in his face at one point. Yeah, Howard was so, uh, like, he really was so, he can immediately size up what's going on with Jimmy. Keeping in mind that Howard always respected yeah. Jimmy on some level. Called Charlie, him Charlie Hustle. Hustle. But he, I think he sees Jimmy for the negative aspects of that as well. And he understands where Jimmy's at right now, and Jimmy needs money and doesn't have another way to make it. So I think that that's a, that's a huge part of, uh, of his concern here, uh, is, that, is that he knows that Jimmy really is a slime ball, And he, he references Gollum. Rob, I always forget this show is like 2003. Yeah. I thought that was a, a little bit of a dated reference, no, but at topical. the time, probably very on point. Yeah, very on point. Yeah, you are, that was a uh, Jeff Galoo. Move, yeah, exactly. Like just bringing up old stuff. Uh, that's, <laughs> well, that's, that's really fantastic. old. I think mean, that's topical in 2003. <laughs> thanks, Rob. Just thanks for dating me. Appreciate that. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, yeah. I don't know uh, which Olympic Games uh, necessarily uh, was. Uh, I'm trying to think of what was going on at that at that point. We need your uh, we need your Seinfeld co-host Akiva Werniker on here to talk about because uh, he's the Olympic expert. Yes, he would know. Yeah. So we then saw, uh, you know, Jimmy saying like, "Hey, you know, uh, come on, let's just take settlement because they're, you, you know, you guys are just, you know, running up your fees." And I think that this is a, a question that uh, other people uh, like myself, the layman, Antonio, could you explain? Does Jimmy have a point here in terms of like, is HHM doing anything that's inappropriate by sort of like dragging this out to collect as many legal fees uh, as they possibly can? Or like, is it actually in the best interest of the people who are like filing this class action lawsuit for them to settle sooner? You're you're asking the wrong guy because I see both sides. I love this part of the week because it's the only time I get to actually use my law degree. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say I would say no. Like there there are a couple things in play. The, with the idea of a class action lawsuit is that multiple people, like tons of people, doesn't have to be thousands, but it's dozens to hundreds uh, uh, of people. Small you know small numbers like that, all the way up to tens of thousands of people, have all been impacted by the actions of this perpetrator and. Rather than have a thousand different lawsuits, these people can opt into the class, right? And they can be part of the class. And what they get out of that is their claim, their individual claim will be settled by the class representative and the attorneys, and then they will get a payout from the class action lawsuit. The problem is the way the settlements are structured in class action lawsuits are there is just this pool of money that isn't the entire settlement. That is some smaller part of the settlement. In this case, it sounds like it's 30%. And that 30% will pay the whole class. So you've probably gotten some kind of class action notice in the mail at some point in your life, if you're listening, or uh, you, you probably know someone who has. And the settlement is usually not great. Like, I remember they had, uh, again, dating myself, they had those record clubs, Rob, BMG, Columbia mm-hmm. House. 
and there was a huge class action lawsuit involving them. There was a settlement, and I think at the end of the day, you maybe got like uh, you maybe got like two records or like one record as your settlement, or like one album, one CD, whatever it was. Like you didn't have your your return is not great. It's not like you're going to luck your way into thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars uh, on most claims like this. Uh, class action suits cannot really ultimately be beneficial for the claimants. Where they can be beneficial, though, uh, is for the attorneys. And the attorneys will ultimately, they're not getting paid uh, directly by all of the class members. Their money comes from the pool of money, the, the, and that's part of the common fund. Uh, and so they're, they're getting paid out, out of a pool of that money. So Jimmy uses the example with the peanuts, and he's showing how this is all the settlement money. It goes into one big pool. Because there's thousands of you, or however many there are, hundreds of you, you're each going to get two peanuts. But look at how many peanuts the lawyers are getting. Uh, and that's really the, 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 the true takeaway. Now, the downside to this is the reasons for the lawsuit in general, like the reasons why we want to allow people to be sued in this way are because they've committed some wrong and they need to be punished. And surely the more that Sandpiper pays, the more they're going to feel the error of their ways. If you believe damages exist in lawsuits to punish punitive damages, then the more Sandpiper pays, the more punishment they'll feel. And theoretically, the less likely they are to do something like this again. So if you settle the claim for lower, they don't feel that sting as much, and maybe they're more likely to commit a similar act or to chalk this money up as cost of doing business instead of something that really hurts them. So I think HHM's strategy is, yeah, we're going to hold out because it's going to benefit us a lot more, but it's also beneficial from the reason that we bring these lawsuits to hold out because the bigger the penalty to Sandpiper, the less likely they or other companies like them are to do this again. And I think that's the, the unspoken part of the, the class action lawsuit. People like Irene, do they really care about that? They just want their money. But the lawyers actually kind of do care about that on some level. So they're, or they're supposed to. And so I think that would be Howard's argument. Look, the more they settle for, the, the, there's going to be a chilling effect on similar behavior. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're waiting. And Jimmy would say, no, you're waiting because you want more money. Like I said, there's room for both sides in this. But Jimmy is right to point out that by delaying the settlement, even though they might increase the pool, that is going to trickle down to the the claimants in a way that really is negligible. It's another thousand bucks, as Jimmy points. Maybe that. And these are people who aren't even going to be alive to see that. So just pay them now is his argument. So is Jimmy in the moral you know, more right than wrong for doing what he's doing. I know why the motive is, but is he kind of doing right by these people? Yes and no. Uh, He's doing right by these people in a manner of speaking. Like he's certainly not hurting them, but the the class representative has to keep in mind that money isn't the only isn't the only reason for the suit as i said like money is the punishment it's the it's the damage but the dam- the the reason for the suit is so that, that this stops happening and doesn't continue to happen and that people who were similarly damaged don't continue to be damaged in that way they're made whole and and they're given the money they deserved but it, it doesn't continue to happen. And now the, the mileage may vary on these class representatives, how much they care about that. They might just want their money and not really care about the punishment end of this. But 
So from a moral standpoint, he has some moral ground he can stand on, but he'd have to shut his brain off as a lawyer to the other half of why this could get dragged out and how that could matter. And he's clearly doing that. He's he doesn't care at all about the punishment. He all he wants is the money. Okay. So from there, we then see uh, Jimmy go to work on Irene, and uh, he knows her mall walking schedule. And uh, love, I mean, Jimmy. One of the funny things about this character is that we see him many different times. Like he will don a costume or disguise. If you were doing Jimmy McGill action figures, there uh, <laughs> you you would have like a like a whole set that you could maybe Daniel Price has somewhere in his house. Oh, man. And what does he do with those action figures? Uh, Keeps them in the box. Don't open them. You'll hurt the value. Listen, uh, where's my cards? Where's my baseball cards? Yeah, uh, that is possible. Yeah, maybe Nacho took them and Nacho is uh, maybe Nacho is using them to practice uh, moves that he's going yeah. to perform on the Salamanca. You, know, you have Bingo sort. Jimmy. You have uh, the uh, mall walking Jimmy. You have you've got you've got Texas yeah, Armadillo uh, Jimmy. Jimmy. Yeah, a community service Jimmy, <laughs> service yeah, Jimmy. With, the, with the vest on. Yeah, like there are a lot of options. We really. Yeah, I think we found the secondary revenue source for Better Call. Of course. Saul. Well, then you get into Gene and you get into uh, <laughs> Slipping Jimmy and you get into Chuck. Cinnabon Gene, right. yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, this is good. This is uh, real good. You get good. into Saul, so the, there's a lot of different uh, Jimmies you can get into. Oh yeah. Oh, you, well you can do, when he dressed up like Howard, you can have the, the Jimmy HHM <laughs> look where he's got the Hamlin to go and the blonde hair. Yeah, that's great. He commits fully, always. He really does. He likes getting in costume, this Bob Odenkirk. It's almost like he's done this before. Yeah. And he ends up with this really elaborate plan, which at the time I'm like, well, what is he doing? So he grabs Irene and ultimately this is all to get her like a pair of fancy uh, tennis shoes. Yeah, all to get her a pair of fancy walking shoes so that he can then later to her friends say like, oh, well, she seems to be doing just fine. She doesn't need that money. She just bought those new walking shoes and making her seem like she's not taking the settlement because she doesn't care and she's not thinking about the group at large. She's only thinking about herself. So this is a hell of a scam to run for that angle. But man, he really exploits it. It really was, Antonio. And then you see him spending a lot of time with the other old ladies. And I felt like that there was a major flaw in this plan, which did not get addressed in the episode, in that you got to think one of these women is going to uh, slip metaphorically and mention to Irene that Jimmy talked to us about doing it. That these, uh, you know... Just from everything I know about, you know, when we get into our uh, some, I'm trying to be very, uh, very safe here, Antonio. But you would think that there's going to be some uh, gossiping going on. No. Yes, that's that's really like and I don't want to say that's all they've got, but that is a huge part of what they've got. And we see them gossiping like we have heard them doing it. And that's what the mall walking seems to be. And they live for it. They live for it. They live for it. They live for it. God bless them. So, yeah, you're right. This is a concern that I'm not sure that Jimmy was thinking about. And it's uh, the, we have waiting for the other running shoe to drop on that one, Rob. But it does seem like something to me, like we may not be done with this. And the concern would be, did Jimmy cross a line ethically? And of course, morally, we can say he crossed a line in many levels. Like, yeah, 
granted, it's really hard if if somebody's a small time cheat and they're chiseling fifty to a hundred dollars out of you. You're not going to get a lawyer to normally represent you on that. That's why class action lawsuits exist. Like these people, their damages and what's fascinating about this is you connect slip and fall. The same pitch basically is being made in so many of these different cases. Uh, it, it's all about really not quite opportunity costs, but just thinking about like what's it going to cost you to do this versus not to do it. Last week we saw Jimmy end the episode talking to the guy with the blackmail. And basically saying, like, you know what? You're going to have to represent yourself. That's going to cost you this. It's going to cost you that. Yeah, you might win in court, but I'm going to drag it out. It's going to take 10 years. And think about how much money it's going to cost you versus letting me just go today is not going to cost you anything, and it's going to avoid all of those costs. Kim makes the same argument, which we'll get into with Gatwood Oil. We see Howard making the same argument about the malpractice insurance with Chuck. And Jimmy is certainly making that argument with uh, with the ladies here and, and with regard to why they deserve the money. Like, take the money now. Take the lump sum payment. Don't hold out for more. And they live for the gossip. They really do live for the gossip. So this is something that they can continue to talk about. And it creates these cracks that ultimately get exposed by his bingo con. So he is somebody who is taking advantage of the very scenario that they're in, which is like, yeah, you couldn't have brought this suit on your own. You're part of a class now because you were only built out of a few hundred bucks no lawyer is going to take that case. The lawyers are only in it so they can make money, but they're going to make money on what's on the table right now. Why should you guys wait any longer? So I think it's fascinating that he does have, as we said, a glimmer of a point, maybe not the moral high ground, but what he does with it is clearly exploit a scenario that he knows will produce this result. He knows this is going to cause a problem with these ladies. That is exactly what he does. The part that bothers me, Rob, and I don't know what your thoughts on this are, he starts the episode by bringing those cat cookies Mm -hmm. to to Irene. When did he form this plan? I don't think by that point he had formed the plan to go all the way through with it and with the shoes and the bingo and everything. But when did he form the plan to come after the Sandpiper money? Because I don't remember that coming up last episode at all. I mean, I think that that was just something that he thought of now where it was just like, okay, let me check in on that. I'm trying to like go around. It's like one of these people where, you know, just to go back to the Sopranos, it's like, uh, hey, I got to come up with this money somewhere. So let me go to, you know, shake down everybody that's on my route uh, to see uh, if there's any money out there. And so I think that he's just thinking like, hey, what about that Sandpiper settlement? Like, what's going on with that? Maybe uh, let me check in to see what the latest is with that. Yeah. And the interesting part of that to me is we had speculated a little bit on this podcast that that might be a a place that he goes to for his money. Like we did talk about Mm. that, but we talked about it in light of the the possibility that he might go to Howard and say, I know I have a 20 percent stake in the the common fund or whatever, but I will accept seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars from you right now and I will give you my whole stake. And why wouldn't he just try to do that? And I'm I still don't understand why that wasn't part. Part of the thinking. Why, when he goes and confronts Howard, why would he prefer to bilk these old ladies, to put them in the situation that he's in, to cause them literal, like, emotional pain and distress, rather than just take a little bit less money and, and sell it out to Howard? He doesn't even try to do that. Yeah, it's a fair point. I don't know exactly what he's thinking, if he'd even be open to that, or if he'd just be like, hey, F you, this is my money, I'm not sharing it with you guys. I don't know. 
Yeah, it, it just it implicates that that's where when we begin the series, when Jimmy is so hard up for money, uh, one of the great character notes is that he is begging for phone messages. He's complaining about $700 for the trial that he got. And then he gets a letter from HHM with a check for like $22,000 and he tears it up and he goes and throws it in their face. And that's when he's really focused on trying to get Howard to properly buy Chuck out of HHM to get him out of the practice, to pay him off to have this over and done with that's the the solution he's trying to create in that moment and i i think in that moment he probably started to realize or recognize that what we learned in this episode fully uh, on paper, which is that HHM maybe doesn't have the money. Uh, it still seems odd to me that they wouldn't be able to scrape together a few hundred grand to give to Jimmy to buy his way out of that thing if that's something Jimmy was open to. But it doesn't sound like Jimmy's even considered. Does HHM owe all their money to the Iron Bank? <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, they are. I'll tell you, uh, Howard is Howard's middle name could be Lannister. He could be a Lannister. Sure. Yeah. yeah, he absolutely could be a Lannister. It fits right in. So that would be a perfect character note. His dad was like the Tywin. Uh, and yeah, he's more like the Jamie or Cersei. I like it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Is there a Tyrion Hamlet out there somewhere? Probably. That's Jimmy McGill, I think. <laughs> Good point, good point. So uh, let's talk about the whole uh, bingo caper. I mean, what an elaborate sort of, uh, I mean, uh, Jimmy McGill is the greatest criminal mastermind, I think, of our times because, I mean, this is really a caper. It really is. And I think it's fascinating to look at Jimmy in the bingo scenes themselves on this through line because we've seen him at the bingo before have a breakdown. The first time we saw him at the bingo, he was being slimy and promoting his business and dressing like Matlock and uh, and going through Matlock the pl- Jimmy, that's another one. Yeah, Matlock Jimmy, going through the place and saying uh and saying eat the jello. Oh, look look there. Like he it was it was a con. He him doing the bingo was a con. It was a con. It was a way to get in and get close to these people. It blows up in his face when he can't take it because of what's happened with Chuck. And when he's talking about B like for brother and everything that's happened there. He has that horrible moment where he storms out of the bingo at the end of season one and goes to Chicago and really leans heavily into the con aspects of his character. That's where the flashback from last week comes in. It takes place right in that same series of events where he walks away from the bingo, goes to Illinois and slips and and starts running cons with Marco again. But uh, better or worse, B for brother or B for boy, I hope my biopsy is better. Nine <laughs> <laughs> or or B for Belize, right? Like this is a, this is again. It's a it's a very much a continuum for Jimmy McGill, uh, and there are there are these. It's a spectrum for sure, and so yeah, this is this is a con that he runs, and the thing is, he's still doing it even though he can't practice law in part to keep the iron hot, to make sure that those clients remember who he is so that when he's able to practice law, his people will still be there. And so he's still doing the bingo, but this time now we see him using the bingo. And as you put it, he's waiting down the bingo ball so that they're the ones that don't jump up or the ones that do. I don't even know how to rig a bingo, Rob. Yeah, I mean, so I think what he was doing is there was a magnet in there, and I think that, and you know how the Breaking Bad and Vince Gilligan loves magnets. Yeah. Uh, they they were uh, he I think he was putting like some sort of like liquid metal into specific balls that uh. were going on and th- and those and that would have been a bingo on the special card uh, 
that he gave to Irene. Right. But just to think of this of like, oh, okay, oh, I know what'll really make everybody mad. What if Irene wins at bingo? And how do I uh, rig bingo to make it that Irene is the winner and then all her friends won't clap and that'll make her have a breakdown and I'll be there to be the emotional rock for her. Yeah, and he, I, great moment by Bob Odenkirk. There is a moment of doubt in this where he bends down to collect the balls and you see him pondering whether he should go through with it or not. And he ultimately does. And of course, when he stands up right there uh, on the nose, adjusting the pinky ring, saying basically like, this is me, uh, Marco, Marco, like this is it. Like I'm running, I'm running a con here. Like this is back to my old ways. And he had some second thoughts, but he went through with it anyway. Irene does win. She storms off and he's there to comfort her. And then again, he plays a very delicate game. If you if these words are going to come back on him in some formal capacity later, this is something where he chose them very carefully for a reason. He is not permitted to give or dispense legal advice uh, because he's not a lawyer right now. Uh, it's dicey for lawyers to, to give legal advice even when they are lawyers. There has to be some kind of engagement or some kind of contract or some kind of uh, the, the, the services have to be acquired. Like it has to be clear. There are all these rules about when you can actually offer clear legal advice and how you have to be careful because people will act on your advice if you're, if you're not clear. Uh, he is very careful here with his words. And he says, what you said, follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's like, I'm listening to my heart. The arteries are clogged. Like this oh. is a bad deal. Yeah. I'm going to go through with this because I'm old. Like she, do you, to what extent do you feel we did? We buried, we buried a little bit of a detail here. She mentions earlier in the episode, that this is all being handled so well by someone from Davis and Maine named Aaron. Uh, how much of this is that, that that's his former, that's the watchdog that uh, Davis and Maine right. set on him. How much Snitch. of that is, 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 is him wanting to stick this uh, knife into her? I mean, I think it's probably much more that he wants the money, but I think that that's a nice uh, side benefit. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember Aaron. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that the fact that it's her is also part of it for sure. Yeah, that definitely was uh, was a thing. And so um, we then see when Jimmy ultimately uh, goes back uh, and tries to convince Kim, like, hey, celebrate with me. And in hindsight, uh, not the worst idea in the world. Not the worst idea in the world, but really poor timing, right? Like right. just exceedingly poor timing. And he didn't know because he's never even heard of this client. So it really does speak to how they're not on the same page at all, really, with what's been going on. Yeah. Although, uh, good thing that Kim did not take the shot at tequila. <laughs> because then she could have been set up for possibly drunk driving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, well, that's set up, but at least, but you know, if when the police come, sure. Yeah. They'd be like, you got some, uh, some really nice expensive tequila on your breath here. I, <laughs> yeah. I do wonder if, if to what extent this crash is going to come back on Kim. Uh, she was certainly amped on no dose, uh, but I don't know about anything else. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. So let's talk about Kim and then ultimately, uh, Chuck, uh, we see her out in the oil fields. I really thought that the disaster with her was going to happen, uh, at the oil, uh, refinery. I mean, uh, that was sort of a long drawn out scene where she, uh, a couple times, like when she was like rocking the car back and forth, did you think something terrible was going to happen then? Yeah, for sure. I did. And the, the 
really the the sense of foreboding, as I said, we could have started flagging it in earlier episodes when she's literally sleeping in her car and then it, the, the continuum evolves and she almost gets in an accident at the oil refinery. And then we ultimately have her moment at the end of this episode, which uh, evocative image reminded me of uh, Citizen Kane, of like a Twilight Zone episode, uh, Time Enough at Last, like all these papers around her shot from over uh, overhead, just like looking down on this horrible thing that has happened. It was very, certainly very evocative uh she's in a, a really bad position uh and it's she's it's it is not something that came out of nowhere this is something that even in this episode as you're pointing out at the oil refinery we were already put on notice like something bad could happen to this character did you ever feel this is the thing you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that we're a lot of pieces in, in play for the final episode, next episode. And I'm sure we'll talk in the second part of this podcast about what we think might happen. But did you feel like any, like sometimes in the ninth episode of TV seasons, a big death happens. Did you mm-hmm. feel like that was on, on board in this episode for any character? Did you ever worry about that? Well, I started to feel like that we could see uh, Kim, we could lose Kim at the point where we were getting the like her driving the car and uh, her POV I like I felt very ominous about that and I was almost relieved when she had the car accident and then we saw her that she was going to be able to walk away from it yeah that's what you were you were hinting at earlier and that makes a lot of sense to me and I think that it is in part it, it rests in some of these earlier scenes like the one you're talking about at the oil refinery where we had this moment where we where we were worried something was going to happen and no I wasn't worried in that moment that she was going to die but it made me start to worry Kim's losing focus she's th- bad things are happening like she is even though she's dedicated like at first I read that scene like she's taking care of business man she's going to get in a piece of wood she's rocking her car up onto it I thought the car was going to rock back onto her like yeah, that was my I concern that's too. Yeah, yeah but but I never really felt like she was that it was going to happen. I thought, well, worst case scenario, this is what we're getting. But by the end of the episode, I too felt like, okay, because of everything that we've seen already, what's the next thing? How do we go to that next level? And that's why I felt all along that we might be building to something with Chuck. Because I feel like we've seen what happens with Chuck when he short circuits, and we've seen how that almost killed him before. I really feel like we, and we got more of it this episode. I think maybe one of the most clear uh, examples of this uh, of this opportunity where Chuck is saying, "Like I'm cured, I'm better, I'm fixed," and we see that that's not the case. And it was last episode where the doctor told him. Don't push yourself too hard. She said, modulate your expectations. This is not going to be fixed overnight. And Chuck's already got the power back on in his house, Rob. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just feel like this is going to, I feel like just like with Kim, where we've seen these incidents along the way that we can now point back to and be like, yeah, we were building to this. I feel like we're going to be able to do that with Chuck as well. Okay, well, let's uh, discuss uh, the Chuck side of things. And uh, we saw ultimately that, uh, what is it, malpractice insurance, Antonio? Malpractice insurance. Yeah, we saw that that chicken came back to roost. Right. They were trying to raise his premiums and uh, put some sort of a rider out there. He balked at it. I think he assumed that Howard was going to be on the same page. He was not. Howard pushed him into retiring. Uh, Were you surprised that Howard was at that point? 
No, I mean, as we've talked about seeing things being built, we've seen Howard and Chuck at odds throughout the season. We have seen the strain that Chuck is putting on Howard professionally. We saw it last episode where Howard said three meals a day. I'm doing this three meals a day because of what you did in that hearing. And Kim was like, it's your fault if you have to do damage control because of Chuck McGill. Like, that's on you. And a great part of that is true. And we know that Howard knows it's true. And we know that Howard is is ready to move on from Chuck in many respects. I think that Howard was encouraging Chuck a couple episodes ago to uh, not waste his time with Jimmy, to find the next chapter of Chuck McGill. At that time, he was saying like, oh, well, imagine what would have happened with all these great lawyers if they were held back by their brothers. But now he's telling Chuck to go teach one else and to, to do scholarship i feel like he's in a slightly different position but he and he's upset about the premiums being raised but i think he's looking at it like well we can shut down the whole firm or we can go to the mattresses like chuck wants to or we can maybe try to get rid of two birds with one stone and get rid of chuck as well and that will fix the malpractice problem so howard brings the alcohol right over that's a very howard move we see him doing that with chuck a lot bringing the booze over to chuck and giving him a drink in a moment this is the second or third time we've seen this so it is a very Howard thing to do. It didn't surprise me. Did it surprise you? Uh, no, not especially. I was more surprised uh, when we got the letter from Chuck to Howard about how he was going to be uh, suing HHM. And then Howard immediately came over to Chuck's house. And I thought this was such a power move. Uh, I guess that works on a couple of levels by Chuck. <laughs> Uh, and uh, he had the immersion blender going, power blending. Power blending, lights on, stove running, not a camp stove, not a camp light. Uh, he's back. Chuck McGill's back, Rob, never to uh, have any issues again. Chuck seemed like he was completely back. Uh, he tells Howard, basically, like, uh, you don't want any of this. You don't, you don't want you don't want to uh, get into a uh, fight with me. And then ultimately he walks out and we see it was all a ruse. He was faking it. Yeah. And he's still struggling. And we've seen we, we see him recenter himself in the way that he did. But it's good to remind us that this is not something that Chuck is fixed. And I really feel like, as I said, I think the other shoe is going to come to drop on this. I love the way they shoot Chuck McGill when he's in the conference room and basically saying, like, I'm better. I'm fine. And he grabs the light and he holds it up to his face and he's shaking. And and Howard just takes one look at that. And Howard drops the uh, he drops the Gus Fring on him. He says, I can't be partners with someone whose judgment I don't trust. This isn't what fine looks like. This isn't what fine looks like. Uh, and this is what fine looks like. And he points to himself. Mm-hmm. No, uh, he he's fine he's really, looks like he's, this is what fine looks like. Yeah. He's in this position where he he feels that way, where Howard ultimately feels he says, what if it's not a suggestion? Like, what if what if this is what I want you to do? And immediately Chuck sees this as completely adversarial. He's not thinking of the greater good. He's only thinking of Chuck. And again, that makes Chuck very much like Jimmy, of course. But this is uh, not surprising that Chuck is going to continue then, like Jimmy, to run a con and to run a con on Howard and to make it seem like everything's okay. I just don't know what Chuck's next move is or what's what's Howard's next move in this. As you said, is it is it a possibility? where people could join forces against one party or the other in this uh, in this war is that are we is that are we introducing something rob that we think is going to be one of the central conflicts of season 4 to me 
it seems like that the door is open for could Chuck and Jimmy potentially be back on the same page for for one more time. Like, are we going to have the rest of the series where Chuck and Jimmy now are, uh, you know, mortal enemies? They're not even talking. We need to get I mean, there's no reason for Chuck to be on the show if he isn't somehow connected to Jimmy. They're both feuding with Hamlin and Chuck was instrumental in the Sandpiper case the first time around. I mean, uh, the one connective tissue between Chuck and Jimmy is that neither of them can practice law. Kim is the one person that has a, uh, you know, um, a a license to practice law of the three of them right now. Could we end up with sort of setting the stage in season four with uh, going to war with HHM? Yeah, it's possible. I still think that Jimmy's issues with Chuck are greater than Jimmy's issues with HHM. I think they're more personal. Jimmy won't even mention Chuck's name. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the part where I feel like you could also just, it could just as likely see Jimmy join forces with Howard to take down Chuck. And that's the part that I think is more interesting to me. But to what end? To take down Chuck as what? As a human being, like as a person who can continue to be a thorn in sides, as a person who is going to continue to present problems. Chuck says, you know, if you didn't want me, if you're concerned about my judgment as a partner, imagine me as an enemy. Uh, And that is ultimately where Chuck is with Jimmy. And they've had this adversarial enemy relationship. And look what happened. Jimmy got suspended for a year, all because of Chuck. So, Chuck's out here causing problems for other people. Is Chuck going to try to make a? Is Chuck going to find a way to make it uh, make a problem for Kim? Is that what's going to happen? Is Howard going to enlist Kim to protect the people she cares about at HHM? Are they going to bury the hatchet in that regard? I feel like those scenarios are more likely than everybody teaming up with Chuck to take down HHM. I feel like Chuck is the bigger tormentor between Chuck and Howard, uh, but maybe Kim's not going to feel good about that. Maybe it's Kim and Chuck versus Jimmy and Howard. I, I don't know how we end up with Jimmy on the same page as Howard. I, I mean, I feel like that uh, Jimmy and Chuck getting on the same page, I think it still would take some, uh, you know, uh, gymnastics to get my head around. But I just think that the door is open to that possibility. But I don't see any world in which Howard and Jimmy are working together. I don't want Howard. I don't think Howard would ask Jimmy for help. The thing is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, like Jimmy needs money. Uh, Jimmy needs to well, get not paid. Anymore. Not right. anymore. Not anymore. Jimmy's got that sandpiper. Well, so, I so. think there's going to be you know a bump in the road with the sandpiper settlement. I don't think it's going to be quite as easy as uh, as it looks. And maybe that's where you know Howard becomes the chief obstacle to this. Where yes. Howard is saying like, no, don't settle. Yeah, now I think we're in we're in well they may even if they already settled like now I think there is a uh there's a more likely scenario that uh, that we see ultimately Howard knew that Jimmy was after the money. He knew that it didn't make sense to settle. He knew that Jimmy had this information about the the settlement and all of that. And now all or now all of a sudden it's settled? Like now that happened? Are you gonna tell me that Howard's not going to immediately think that Jimmy was responsible? Is that going to bring Howard and Chuck back together? Is that going to put Howard in front of Jimmy in a way that Jimmy will be more willing to work with Chuck against Howard? Like there are a lot of possibilities here. I think what we're seeing ultimately and it kills me to say it because I'm ready to just get rid of Chuck on this show. And I do think that his slip could mean him dying. I still believe in what I'm reading and into that. But 
it seems like this sets up a lot of possibilities for season five that we haven't even really scratched the surface of yet. Or season four. Season four. My apologies. Yeah. Season four. Yeah. yeah. So who knows where we could be in season five. All right. Uh, anything else from the uh, Jimmy, Kim, uh, Chuck of it all? Or uh, should we start to move into uh, the real underworld of uh, what's going on in New Mexico? A little connective tissue between those two stories. When Kim's in the car, of course, we talked about her no-dos. No-dos is a character from Breaking Bad who Tuco uh, had quite the incident with uh, when No-dos spoke out of turn in the junkyard with Walt and Jesse, and Tuco responded in kind. And then Jimmy in the mall, we see yeah. a sign behind him that says Crazy 8. I noticed That's that. something yeah. yeah, right on point, right? So we've seen Crazy 8 on this season already. Is I don't know if we need a more direct tie-in, but that was Maybe he works sure. there. Maybe he works there. Maybe that's where he got his name. It's entirely possible. Yeah. We know his dad earned a, owned a furniture store at one point, but that doesn't mean he still works there. Okay. All right. So before we get to talking about what's going on with uh, Mike and Nacho and uh, Gus and Hector and uh, the, the whole gang, uh, literally, uh, let's take a moment and talk about True Car, uh, our sponsors for this episode of the uh, Better Call Saul Post Show Recap. Antonio, in order to feel comfortable that you're getting a fair price, you need pricing context, which is information that empowers you to feel confident, uh, just like when uh, Jimmy McGill puts on a new costume. Uh, with True Car, you'll see what other other people in your local market paid for the car that you want. And from there, you can connect with local True Car certified dealers and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. You know, Antonio, before True Car, do you know how people used to find out what people paid for cars? You would get like a whole like coffee clutch together and say, oh, yeah. did you hear what this person paid for this car? Did you hear what he paid for this car? <laughs> you didn't know. You didn't no, have context. That means you're subject. That means that you're uh, you're you're capable of being ripped off, like yeah. uh, like those like keep what coffee clutches get. Yeah, uh, with True Car you'll easily find the car that you want, and then True Car will show you what other people in your area paid for that car. Oh. Then you'll know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. And once you register, you'll see real pricing on the actual inventory. That's competitive pricing offered to you only by a True Car certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to the dealership, so you feel confident when you show up. And with True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing and enjoy a quick easy car buying experience. And best of all, True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off of the MSRP. So when you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right, Antonio, uh, let's talk about uh, some interesting stuff going on here. Uh, we had uh, Mike at Madrigal. Uh, we saw a meeting of uh, Gus and Hector and Nacho also again uh, and kicked out of his dad's house. But of, of these things, I, I really want to talk about the confrontation between Gus and Hector. Yeah, let's do it, man, because there were three F-bombs and speaker phones and a rain and an undisclosed location. It was great. Yeah. But I'm so confused as to what happened when we saw Hector have the attack. He took a pill. Did it work? Did it not work? Is Hector on board with like, a, is it just a placebo pill for Hector? Or is there something in the pill that Nacho gave him that is going to go into effect at some point? 
No, I think that it was just ibuprofen, if I'm not mistaken, and that can be that can be problematic for people that have heart conditions that are and are, that are in a similar place, from what I understand. And we see Nacho when he talks to his dad say it's it's not gonna it, it will blow over very quickly. So this is not an instant death scenario for Nacho. This is more of a slow burn. He knows that by denying Hector those pills long enough, this is something that will ultimately come back and bite him. If to the extent Hector recovers at all, quote unquote, from this incident, it probably is a placebo effect. But I really feel like in the long term, the lack of that medicine is going to bite him. And one of these times he has a blow up, it's not going to work out for him. So you think it's more of like a chronic issue and that uh, because uh, that he has not gotten the medicine over certain doses and uh, it's more like a vitamin where if he gets a deficiency, that's where he's going to have a problem? Yeah, I think that, the, and I think that the the idea that the placebo has some impact uh, can save him a little bit of grief, but not. It's not going to save him every time. It's not going to save larger attacks. Ultimately, you can't placebo your way out of the problems that I think those nitro pills are are sought to call are sought to prevent. So, it really is like a thing where it might not have got him this time, but it's gonna it's gonna happen. Uh, and maybe there's maybe there is the half life of the previously taken medication in there still working out. There could be some aspect of that as well it just feels like the belief is that it wasn't going to happen this time but it's going to happen in relatively short order i mean this is going to come to a head in the finale right it's going to come to a head in the finale you would think yeah this is uh we had that question from a few people sent in uh including the great johnny d silvera like what 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 are we going to see is this going to happen in the finale it seems very likely that this could happen in the finale but it also seems possible that something else could come to a head and we do see the scene with Nacho and his dad, where Nacho is basically having to warn his dad about what's going to happen with Hector. My understanding of this, and you tell me if yours is different, we had that scene where he takes the pill that we've talked about. And what goes down in that scene is they, as a group of people who deal with the cartel, and the cartel is the one setting the rules and setting everything up, uh, and they have the the levels and all of it. The cartel, and it's I think it's uh, Juan Bolsa, says ultimately... Hey, I talked to our friend at the pool. That's Don Eladio. And he says now, basically, the Chilean, it's working well. So the Chilean is now going to run all of the distribution. Uh, and you're still, you still have your territory. So you still make the money off of it. But he's handling you. get. You're now beholden to him, ultimately. He's now your supplier. And that's the way this is going to work. And that upsets Hector greatly. And I think that's going to cause Hector to really go to Nacho's dad. Because I feel like what the role he wants Nacho's dad to play is a role where because Nacho's dad operates a business that orders products uh, and has deliveries and things like that with regard to like upholstery of vehicles. Not upholstery vehicles? Not upholstery vehicle, but upholstery of vehicles. This is two different things, two different classes here, Rob. But he must have a thing for ver- for homonyms. Uh, Hector Salamanca, well known for his homonym love. Um, yes, this is... Uh, uh, this is absolutely an upholstery truck, not a poultry truck. Right, where he can bring in the drugs. So now, but that the, really the, you know, the beauty out. of that is that if uh, the cartel ever gets mad, say uh, Hector, Don Hector, we told you that you needed to go with Gus. He's like, oh. A poultry truck. Oh, okay. I thought you said a poultry truck. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, my, <laughs> my God. English is so bad. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was a bad connection on a speakerphone. So I sorry. thought you said a poultry truck. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I could absolutely. That, uh, this is great. We're going to, it'll be who's on first is what's going to happen ultimately. 
This is going to uh, definitely uh, come come to a head uh, coming up uh, in in uh, next week. But poor Nacho, not da- Nacho's dad, says uh, get out. Yeah, and the sad part of that, right, is that when Nacho's telling him, he says like Hector Salamanca, and and his dad is so crestfallen. And Nacho's like, I've been working with him again. So like, this is clearly an ongoing problem between the two of them. All his dad wants is for Nacho to be on the level and be interested in the family business. And it sounds like Nacho has slipped back into working with the Salamancas when he previously, his dad knew that he was working with them and didn't approve of it. So this is a real, real emotional letdown. I, I felt, I felt bad for Nacho. Like, yeah, this is of Nacho's own making. If Nacho isn't in the room with Hector, Hector doesn't say get daddy involved, but this is our, uh, this was crippling. I mean, it was a, the get out that was said there was not like anger. It was disappointment and frustration and real, just a uh, crestfallen dad. That was tough, man. That was really tough. Yeah. Poor, uh, Hector's dad. How does this story ultimately work out? We think that, uh, Hector is going to end up at the wheelchair and then, uh, the Nacho upholstery business, uh, is going to be saved. Hopefully, that's the part I worry about, right? Because as I said, it seems like whether or not the pills will ultimately take Hector out, it might be too late. Like if his dad, if Nacho's dad stands up to Hector, says no in the moment, he might die. He might get roughed up before it even comes into uh, effect that Hector is taken off the map. And that's what Nacho is imploring his dad. Listen, just do what he says. It'll blow over very quickly. But his dad may not be willing to do anything. And his dad might die before this ever happens. That's my big concern is here we have dad pop up in episode nine. Is he dead? I know I know we'd seen him before this, but is he dead by the end of this season? Even if it then ultimately later works out with Hector. I just I worry about that. I do worry that Hector is going to want to get the dad on board before Hector dies. Uh, and that, that that's ultimately something that could cause the dad to die first. And yeah. that's a really bad scenario. We also saw Mike uh, having some interactions with Lydia, getting him set up on payroll over at uh, Madrigal. Am I pronouncing that yeah. right? Madrigal, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Mike, uh, very skittish about filling out, getting his name on the on the books. Why do I have to give you my ID card? Yeah, this is, uh, he doesn't uh, want. What do you need me to fill out now? <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, security consultant. This is what you get. This is what you get. You get a guy, and Lydia digs the knife in, like, oh, it's going to look better than your current employer, uh, HH or whatever, WMC Parking. Yeah, like, and it's like, ouch, really, Lydia. This is the first time they met, Rob. Like, this is a big deal because they have a lot of other confrontations in the realm of Breaking Bad, and Mike has no love lost for Lydia. So to see them in this scenario, I think it's great. Now, can you tell me, do I have to put Kaylee down as a dependent or not? Uh. (laughs) I can't advise you. It's nice to have someone that you care about. Yeah. Oh, God. Poor Mike. Yeah. Yeah. This is not good. To me, though, the big takeaway from this scene is this is the point of no return for Mike. I mean, this is basically his like literal that he's signing the deal with the devil that you can draw the through line from Mike fills out this form. And then at the end of this road is him. Spoiler alert, uh, being shot by Walter white. hundred percent. I felt that way pretty much after the handshake last week. Like, because we oh, saw great. Mike. That's just what I need right now. 
Another handshake deal gone awry. Uh, I think that we saw this develop with Mike over this season. He didn't want to take the job from Gus originally. He didn't want it. Now he is directly working, uh, not for Gus per se, but he literally gave money to Gus for Gus to pay him with. And he's a quote-unquote security consultant. Lydia's like, I'll be happy to have you off my payroll in 20 weeks. I took that line to say, you're never leaving my payroll until mm-hmm. Gus dies. Like, this is the beginning of a relationship that is never going to end. And that it, it's, I don't know what more action we're going to get from Mike in this season. I don't, you say about the pieces in place. We're definitely building to something with Chuck. We're definitely building to something with what's happening with Hector. We're definitely building to something with Kim and Jimmy. I don't know what we're building to this season with Mike. I have a much longer look and it's the exact same one as you. Mike is now in like Mike now has to work for Gus to deal with that, to, 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 to earn his money, quote-unquote earn his money. He isn't just putting him on the payroll as a favor to Mike. Uh, there's going to be some expectations here, and the expectations are going to be working for Gus. And Mike is underestimating Gus. He calls him what he's like, you're risking a lot for a drug deal. You're risking a lot for a drug dealer is what he says. And what does Lydia say in return? If you think Gustavo Fring is just a drug dealer, then you do not know the man. Yeah. And that's uh, that's pretty cra- that's pretty crazy because it made me realize, Rob, that we don't really know the man. We don't know what Gus is beyond new prequel a drug dealer. That's the next new one. prequel. Yes, the Chilean. Yeah, the Chilean story. Yeah, like this is uh, the Chilean job. So we don't really know what Gus is. We don't know why he was protected against the cartel originally. We don't know how big his empire owned. Does he own? Madrigal? Does he own it on paper? Does he own it off paper? Like, where does this end? Is that just somebody he went into business with? We don't know. But if he's more than just a drug dealer, certainly he's a kingpin. He's a drug kingpin. He's not just a hand-to-hand guy. But is he is he more? Like, is he is he of an arms cartel? Like, is he involved in overthrow of governments? Like, where does the Gus Ring Empire end? On the other hand, It does seem as though, I mean, he is taking orders from the Mexican drug cartel. I mean, I don't think he really wants, I mean, he's acting to Hector like, oh, my hands are tied. I don't really, I I mean, you would think in a perfect world, he doesn't want to be working with Hector. So he seems to have limited power in that one facet. If he really was running some sort of like global, like multinational corporation, uh, I, I can't imagine that he is. Uh, is he on the board of Madrigal, perhaps? But I can't, I can't imagine that he is the head of that company and still putting in time at Los Poyos Hermanos in maybe New Mexico. That was just, yeah, maybe that was just reverence in her voice. Yeah. Like maybe that was just like, he's so much more. He's like so brilliant. He's so talented. He sees the big picture like no one I've ever met. Like maybe it's just that, or maybe it's that Gus is a guy who in public and on paper, his public life is he's a franchiser and a franchisee. He's franchise player. Oh, he's a franchise player. He's the owner operator of LPH of Los Poyos Hermanos. But that's it. That's all he does. And I think the truth of the matter might be a lot bigger than that. We don't really know. And yes, he's quote unquote beholden to the cartel. But what we see even in 2003, keeping in mind that Breaking Bad is in 2008, he's already laying the tracks and and looking at the laundry and meeting with Lydia and already deeply involved with Madrigal, who is the person who Walter then uses later on to ship the drugs worldwide. So, and we know from Lydia that she was pitching this to Gus and they were working on setting it up. 
the question is like, where does that end? Right now, we think he's getting his meth from from Mexico, but we don't really know who's cooking it. We don't know the details of that. We don't know if he's playing nice with the cartel, but on some other level, has got some other crazy things going on. We just don't know. And I think that's the fascinating thing for me is that we just, when she says a line like that, it's probably just reverence, but it's also possible. It's hinting at the fact that we as an audience don't really know the full extent of Gus Fring's empire ever. Yeah. Antonio, do you feel like that Mike has had a slow year in season three? I mean, what has Mike really done other than he's met Gus Fring? But other than that, I think that Mike has been without a lot to do here in the third season. I agree. Uh, He had like a tentative love interest that hasn't really materialized into anything. Yeah. And I'm like, what happened to that? Right. (laughs) Where's Anita? Uh, Anita love interest. Yeah. Like this is uh, something that he had. Can you get uh, me Vince Gilligan on the phone, please? No, I don't want to go on that talking Saul show again. (laughs) Uh, Uh, I think it's just like Frowning Mike is the name of his own show. Uh, but yeah, Jared Noun. That's how you do it. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Yeah, this is. uh, We don't know. I agree. He's had a slow year. Uh, but he's he's you know he's up he's up in years. Like he uh he's had a slow he's had a slow go of it. We saw. I mean, what are you gonna send him to Sandpiper? (laughs) <laughs> wouldn't be a bad idea uh yeah maybe like maybe we need to uh send him out to pasture but no he's had a the character has had a slower season the story of mike this season i think that you have captured it by saying this is it we've witnessed now the beginning of the end even though the end's not going to come for seven years we've witnessed the beginning of the end for the mike character we know why it happened we saw his soft spot for kaylee you know open and develop and grow and all these things and ultimately, it relates back to five zero in season one and the things that happened with his son. But we have seen what put him in the position to now end up working for Gus Fring. And the part that's fascinating to me is how how predatory is Gus? Because when Gus last episode says, I would never take money uh, from your family, and he's offering to cover the taxes, and Lydia's like, no, I've never done this for him before. Whatever you do, you must be really good at it, or he must think you're really good at it. So this is Gus, I think, recognizing that Mike has talent, which we saw on display this season, but this season has really seemingly been all about getting them together and bringing the two of them together, and that's all Mike's story has been this season. And like I said, I don't see what it's building to. I don't think there's a climax coming this season for the Mike story. Well, I think that the bigger problem is I think they've really painted themselves into a corner with having Mike as a character on this show. And there's been a lot of great Mike moments through three seasons of this show. But I think that with the Jimmy McGill storyline, you had a lot of runway to get into, okay, becoming Saul Goodman by the end of this series. And I think that where you're going to end up having the satisfying conclusion to this story is going to be probably in the Gene timeline at the end. I would not be surprised. I think it was a really brilliant decision to interject the Gene stuff into that first episode and start there because I have a feeling that the epilogue and uh, whatever the ultimate ending of this is going to be is going to take place in that Gene timeline. But for Mike, I mean, what do we ultimately get Mike to? I mean, it doesn't seem like that there's that much more, you know, that we too many twists and turns for Mike. He's already working with Gus. He's going to be in that role by the I mean, it's like now we just need Mike to sort of fill time for the rest of the series. 
Yep, that's difficult. And we have to find a way, I think, like, to... Like, what is the end of that story on this show? I don't know that there is one. Uh, maybe there's conflict with Stacy, like with his daughter-in-law. We don't really know what their scenario was. She wasn't really talking to him in Breaking Bad, I don't think. So there's at least that possibility where maybe they weren't on as good of terms and there's going to be something coming to a head. Oh, with that, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not thrilling, right? We could get into uh, we could get into Mike and Anita. We could do all that, but you're right. The story that we needed to tell with Mike in the context of Better Call Saul, we told it. We, we explained what his backstory was before he got to Albuquerque. We brought him into the under the wing of the dragon. Ultimately, mm-hmm. he now works for he now works for he now works for Gus Fring, and now he's under the dragon's wing. And the funny thing about being under the wing of the dragon, it's it's pretty warm under there. So I don't know that he's going to. I mean, maybe he's going to bucket some of the things that Gus wants him to do, like but, a bucket of chicken. Like a bucket of chicken, but mm-hmm. it feels like uh, this is. It feels like he's done. Like it feels like he has. He certainly doesn't have to keep working at the parking garage. Like he doesn't have to keep working at the parking lot. Maybe he'll get dragged into the stuff with Nacho and Hector and all of that, and the Salamancas. But ultimately, we know he survives. So, what story do we have left to tell with Mike? We almost have to use Mike now as our tour guide into the world of Gus Fring. Right. To learn more about Gus and his empire through Mike's eyes. That's what we're going to do with Mike, I think, going forward. And I think the only other thing you could do with Mike is that he could be sort of like this um, magnet, again, another magnet, to pull Jimmy more into the underworld and like be like introduce him to like more connections in that world, but not too many because, you know, ultimately he's not tight with Gus Fring at the start of Breaking Bad. So I think that you could start to like uh, get him into, you know, uh, either representing Mike as Mike is uh, having problems in the legal world. But I just I think that that's more of a roadblock. And I think that that's probably where there's been not that much more room to develop Mike in this third season. I mean, there was an episode, I think, where the Mike wasn't even in it. So um, I don't know what Mike does in the finale. No, I don't know either. And and I think that, as I said, I don't feel like this is a story that's building to a big climax this season unless something comes up with the Salamancas because he hasn't put that to bed and he clearly still has issues attendant there. And that has been something that's come up. Nacho came to him or he came with Price to Nacho and talked about it. He knows about the plan. He told him to switch the pills back. Uh, now he works for Gus Fring. Does he have a duty to say, you know, that guy you didn't want dead, like somebody's going to kill him. Like, does he do that? I don't know. Like where he can play a role in that story though. Then the other side is you point out, you could drag Jimmy into the underworld. We know by the breaking bad timeline that Mike was really pretty officially acting as Jimmy's investigator, his fixer. But we don't know like how often that happened. And they're kind of already in that relationship now where they call each other when they need the kind of favor that only the other one can do. So it really feels like that's already there. So I don't know what where, where we have to go with Mike. It'll be a... Uh It'll be interesting to see how much we learn about the Gus Fring Empire through Mike. That won't be this season, but it should be in seasons to come. Okay. All right, Antonio. uh, Any other things before we start to wrap this up? No, as I said, this one was called Fall. Last week was called Slip. I like Slip and Fall together. I think that this is all the fallout from the slipping that the various characters are doing. Yeah. You're laughing. Fallout, better or worse than Slip Out. Yes, it is. Uh, better call Fallout. Yeah. Uh, slip Out is not as good. No, yeah. you're right. Um, <laughs> that's something very bad. Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, we just... I, it's... 
it's so hard. This was a very difficult episode to watch. I, it's just, we like Jimmy McGill. I think we, we sympathize with Jimmy McGill. We feel bad for Jimmy McGill. But when Jimmy McGill acts like this, there's not, this is Saul Goodman. Right. This is not somebody that we like. And this is much more difficult uh, to watch. And I think it'll be fascinating to see. I mean, we had the great moment. There were, there were references, and I, didn't, I don't even know what the peanut one was, but we saw Night of the Hunter on the TV behind Jimmy when he was talking to the ladies. If you hadn't seen that movie, that's one of the darkest, most like uh, con men based, like just dark movies uh, that I've seen. It's fantastic. So that wasn't there by accident. And then, of course, he was referencing the hustler, I think, playing pool and running the hustle there. But this is these are not great markers to point to. The hustler is fine. But Night of the Hunter, like you don't want that character in the same frame with Jimmy McGill because the character in that movie is depraved. And he is a dark, dark man who serves some time in jail with a guy who died now he's looking to find this buried treasure that the guy told him about and he comes back and menaces the whole family it's a very like a cape fear type connection and that's not the guy you want on tv with jimmy so i do think they're they're setting us up to uh, to feel this could be bad uh for the character as we know him and i don't feel like whatever happens in this next episode is going to make that any better i guess my top prediction for the next episode rob if you want to do that real quick sure my top prediction would be that we're going to see more from Gene next episode. I think the mall with Jimmy was a little bit of a wink and a nod to that. And we've not done this, revisited Gene twice in one season. I feel like it makes a lot of sense to do that at the end of this episode, at the beginning of next episode or at the end of next episode. I think it would be fun, but we haven't seen Gene in a finale. He's been sort of like tied into only in the openings. Uh, so I'll that I, I would like it, but I don't think they're going to go back to uh, Gene. Let me also uh, ask you the title of next week's episode. Episode 10 is Lantern. Now, the only other lantern we've seen is what was on the newspapers at Chuck's house. Is it possible? Do you think that we could see some sort of a fire breakout? Is that two on the nose? I don't think it's two on the nose. That's entirely possible. Chuck, uh, I don't know how that electricity got reinstalled. Chuck maybe could have a short out while he's operating something on the stove or something like that. We could easily see that. That has been a piece that has been possible throughout. Uh, I I don't think that's a bad call at all. And if that kills Chuck, if that's the demise of Chuck McGill, I'd feel vindicated in my feeling that we need to kill Chuck uh, sooner rather than later on this show. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what's going to happen, though. I just think that that's an interesting title for an episode lantern yep uh and that is the the lantern on the financial times jimmy said that picture tells a full story right there and that lantern has gotten chuck in trouble before so in in terms of that with that uh just the idea that it's possible so this could be a bad thing for chuck for sure now hypothetically uh chuck's house burning down could there be some sort of like malicious attempt could that be whether it's hamlin whether it's jimmy could somebody uh, could there be arson involved of like they've already established like, hey, look at this. He puts lanterns on newspapers. If that house was to burn down, uh, not necessarily to as an attempt to kill Chuck, but to hurt Chuck. I, I feel like that that's more in line with something that Jimmy might do. Yeah, if Chuck wasn't there like that's the issue is I don't think anybody would. I just don't think Howard or Jimmy at this stage 
is in a position where they're willing to jeopardize Chuck's life. Jimmy is saying Chuck doesn't exist. I don't even want to talk about that guy. And Howard is, let's see you in court uh, mode with Chuck. So I don't know how we get to that point where that happens, but it, it is possible. I think the interesting thing to think about is how every one of these characters is using these logical arguments for why settling makes sense. Kim's making that same case to the the oil rights holders. We didn't really get into it, but she's basically saying, like, shoot first and ask questions later. Like, hurt their resources and damage them, pay them what they're worth. That way they can't run an auction for the property rights, and they can't get you to pay more than they're worth. Just pay them for the damage that you're going to cause uh, to their property, and that's it. And it's basically saying, like, if they're smart, they'll take that because that'll be much better than them paying lawyers and dragging out a lawsuit. You're going to come to them with money in hand and say you can have it right now. That's the same thing with the Sandpiper suit. It's basically what Howard is saying to Chuck. There's a lot of these logistical decisions. Make this decision in the short term rather than have to worry about something in the long term. And that's kind of what's happening with Mike. And so I do wonder if that kind of deal making, as we see almost all these characters engaging in it, is going to be something that is present in the finale and is going to cause a problem. All right. Give me your one person that if they die, that's your, is, is it Chuck? Is that your, uh, you're going to put your chip on Chuck? Chuck chip? I'm going to put my, I'll, I'll put my chip on Chuck. I'll put my chip on Chuck. Or ch- a Chuck chip? Yeah. My Chuck chip. Your Chuck chip. Um, yep. I'm going to go with Hamlin. Howie. Oh, poor Howie. Poor Patrick. Yeah, no, I hope not. I hope not. That would make me sad, man. Yeah, I just think that uh, his story has run its course. I mean, we got to get into, you know, uh, the Saul Goodman of it all. And Hamlin, he's uh, holding us back. Yeah, I think the... The, and, and, and we talked about the, the scenario where we could see a protracted uh, legal battle in season four, but uh, taking Howard off the table would wipe that pretty clean. Of course, I feel the same way about taking Chuck off the table. So I think we've gotten a lot more out of Howard. I don't know what where his story goes from here, but I think he's a great character on the show who is a fascinating foil to both Chuck or to all of the three of them, to Chuck, Jimmy and Kim for different reasons. Uh, and I think it's funny to see Howard at odds with Chuck, but feeling the same way that Chuck feels about Jimmy now. I think that's fascinating uh, because here's two guys that can't get along enough to even meet for more than two minutes in the same room now, and yet they agree about the the evilness of Jimmy McGill. So I think Howard is a fascinating character, but you're right. Story-wise, what more is there? Uh, he's like, uh, I don't know how much more grist they're going to get out of uh, the story of the character of Howard McGill or Howard Hamlin, but he does play a great role for all three of them. So that would be a shame. If uh, Hamlin was out of the mix, uh, what would be stopping Chuck from being back at the helm of HHM? Nothing. Uh, he'd be back at the helm and uh, suing the insurance provider. That would be what would be happening. Yeah. So, you know, but if Chuck's out of the mix, then Howard, uh, then who gets his money? You know, like who gets his share of HHM? Is Jimmy still the beneficiary in his will? Is it Rebecca? Like, I feel like there's a lot of interesting stuff that could happen there. And you could have more story for Howard if Jimmy is stepping into his shoes in many respects as a beneficiary of HHM. Yeah. Um, all right. Lots of fun stuff. Uh, lots of fun hashtags that uh, we can go with. Uh, but I think my favorite might have been uh, a poultry vehicle. A poultry vehicle. Let's do it. Okay. A poultry vehicle. Let's do that. Uh, of course, you can follow Antonio on Twitter at 
A.C. Mazzaro, uh, two Z's, one R. You're going to want to send in your questions for us for the finale of Better Call Saul. You could do that uh, after you watch the show this Monday night, bcs at postshowrecaps.com. So I'm sure we'll have a great uh, finale podcast next week. And uh, Antonio, we've got so much going on in the post-show recaps between, uh, I'm talking uh, Fear the Walking Dead right now with Alex Kidwell, in addition to these podcasts with you, House of Cards, uh, uh, with Zach Brooks, Seinfeld with Akiva Winokur. So I'm really just uh, all over the place right now on post-show recaps. Yeah, so many good things going on. Uh, I'm enjoying uh, the House of Cards podcast especially. Like I said, a lot of fun. I already finished the season, so I have a lot of fun uh, realizing some of the things I really wasn't thinking about as I was steamrolling my way through it. Yes. And I like the process you guys are going with the way that you're taking those shows in. So uh, congrats for that. And I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's a weird process that allows us to like, we're at the buffet. We're, you know, stuffing our face like uh, as you would with a Netflix show, but it's forcing us to come up for air and sort of like, uh, you know, allow us to digest a little bit more of what's happening. Yes, yes, uh, and it's uh, it's fun. I really think it's fun. I had a lot of fun with that, and I always like the Seinfeld podcast, and you guys are so close to finishing that one. So yeah. lots of great stuff here at Post Show Recaps for sure. All right, uh, make sure you subscribe uh, to our main feed, postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes, or for just, I mean, I just sign up for the main feed at this point because uh, there's only one more uh, Better Call Saul show, and then uh, we'll see, based on what happens, if there's uh, more to unpack, Antonio and I uh, have no issue with coming back and talking some more Better Call Saul after the finale. But sometimes like uh, we get through the season and then it's like, okay, well, we, we let a couple of weeks go by. We'll see how it goes. We'll see. They, my understanding is we could be seeing uh, – we could have a lot to talk about, Rob. We're not like we were last season where we felt like we'd figured out Fring's back and all of that. Uh, we don't really know what they're going to offer for Better Call Saul. So if we have a need for a feedback show, if there's a desire for that, I'm sure we'd be willing to jump back and do that. Yeah, it's a blank slate for me. Yeah, Tabula Rasa. We'll be back to cover the finale for sure. All right, everybody. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.